Hey everyone, it's Hamish from the Young Investors Podcast. Myself and Brandon are excited to bring you your weekly rundown of the latest business and investing news from around the world. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. It's, uh, well, it's just me today. Um, Unfortunately, it feels a little bit strange. Um, Hamish is unfortunately uh, sick today, so he can't join me, but it's okay. It actually worked out very well in the end. The reason why is because in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Guy Spear. Now, I actually, at the time of recording this little bit, I haven't actually sat down with him yet. I'm going to be sitting down with him tonight, but I'm sure it was a great chat and you guys are going to have a great time listening to it anyway. Uh, So I will hand it over to myself. Guy, of course, you know Guy, this is his second podcast appearance. You know him from the Aquamarine Fund. I was actually very uh, privileged to be able to meet Guy earlier uh, in the year. I met him over at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting. He invited both me and Hamish to go to a dinner with him. Um, and some of his investors, which was absolutely, it was an awesome experience. So I got to chat to him. I got to meet him. He is a very nice guy, as I'm sure this interview will show. Uh, but with that said, for the next, I guess, I don't know how long it's going to go for, 45 minutes an hour, this is my chat with Guy Spear. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. And I'm excited to be joined by a very special guest today, the one and only Guy Spear. Guy started the Aquamarine Fund back in 1997. He's also an author, having published The Education of a Value Investor in 2014, I believe. And he's also known for teaming up with Monish Pabrai and placing the winning bid for Warren Buffett's charity lunch back in 2007. And uh, first of all, welcome, Guy. One of the questions that we got straight off the bat um, that I, I kind of fielded from the audience, someone wanted to know, what did you eat? At that lunch, <laughs> do you remember? Well, of course, no? we had steak. We had steak. It was steak. at um, it was at Smith and Walensky's, and it's a sort of like semi-private uh, dining room with a circular table, where on the one side you have a view of the kitchen, and on the other side it's semi-open to the restaurant, and anybody can go there to Smith and Walensky's and book that table, and you can eat there. And there, th- that's where many of the Buffett lunches have taken place, and so there are plaques on the wall for different people who've had lunch there, including, I think, or I know my name, because I've had I've hosted a lunch there subsequently. And um, and so it's a fun place to visit. And Smith and Walensky, how clever they were to offer to host the lunch for free, because look how many times their name is being mentioned, and they are now known as the place for the power lunch in New York. And so we had steak, of course. I mean, what else were we going to have? And <laughs> it was funny, because beforehand, Brandon, um, Monish, who was not, he's not, actually, he likes meat, but his wife, uh, she's, I believe, vegetarian. And there's a really, really good Indian restaurant around the corner called Bukhara. And oh. we were kind of joking and saying, you know what, Warren, can we just go around the corner and have some good Indian food? But no, we weren't going to do that. So it was, it was a steak. And, you know, we had, I don't remember what kind of steak. I think I had a T-bone steak, medium well is what I, what I always have. <laughs> and um, we had all the all the sort of trimmings, like they all came in a certain way. When you have that kind of celebratory lunch, you kind of get everything on the menu. Right. You know, it's a bit like there's a famous um, Monty Python sketch where there's very overweight, uh, but, but gros gourmand, very big eater guy. Oh, comes yes. on and, he says, and he says, I'll have the lot. 
yeah, a very thin wafer is what comes at the end. It's pretty disgusting. But, but so yeah, it was steak. And I don't remember what there was for dessert, but I feel like they kind of brought all the desserts on the menu. My big regret, Brandon, is that, um, you know, I was so slavish. I mean, one of the big lessons I had was I'm not Warren Buffett. So stop trying to be Warren Buffett. And that was kind of a, that, that was not an easy lesson for me to learn. It was painful because I was desperately attached to the idea of being at least as good as, if not better than Warren Buffett. I was, I didn't give that up, idea up easily. But if I was doing the lunch again, uh, I would, I would look Warren in the eye and say, Warren, we're having wine. We're going to have a very good wine. Smith and Walensky's has some amazing wines. And I'll, you know, I, it, Warren, I'll take a sip of a Diet Coke if you'll take a sip of XYZ wine. And I think the only the only problem is, is that I might have wanted been tempted to go for a like incredibly expensive wine, which I don't think would have been appropriate. So uh, you can you can get wines that cost like ten thousand dollars, and uh, so that wouldn't. I but I would have ordered a nice two or three hundred dollar bottle of wine. That was the food situation. There you go. That's 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 what everybody on the podcast wants to know about the food situation. <laughs> have you kept in touch with Warren over the years, or? Oh, but so I, I think that Brandon, there's some really, really important lessons that I've learned. And so the the answer is, um, uh, you know, in, in, to most people's understanding, no. But it's not a complete no. There has been there has been some contact, and right. in in allowing for a relationship to be there with Warren is really I'm I'm extremely grateful to Monish, who really taught me uh, how one interacts with people who are more successful than we are. And who have less time, who have more mm. money and less time than we do. And so, uh, something that I still feel like many people don't get is that, and I didn't get, but I hope to share it. So, we assume if you're a student or if I'm somebody who's going through life, I'm a retired person, uh, we assume that our time feels the same, their time, that other person's time feels the same to them as it does to me, but it's not the same. So, uh, a very dumb idea would be to try and make a call on that person's time, where mm. if you really put yourself into their shoes, it's not worth it. So mm. a teacher in a class could not do one-on-one -on -one session, tutoring sessions with every single member of the class. A, um, so so uh, why is this important? Because if every time I was to be in Omaha, I'd say, hey, Warren, do you want to come out for a coffee? Hey, Debbie, could, could Warren come out for a coffee? I, I feel very confident that not even that, something a way smaller call on Warren's time, uh, re uh, the request would be politely denied once or twice, and then and then contact would shut down, mm. <laughs> if you like, because it's like, this guy doesn't get it. This guy doesn't understand how to interface to me in a positive yeah. way. So so the, the, the answer is there is a relationship yeah. based on the huge disparity of power, wealth, influence, where I think that I understand what my place is, if you like. And, um, you know, I think that uh, somebody, he's got many, many relationships like this, where somebody like me can act as an eyes and ears, can act as a scout. So to the extent that I came across something that was of value to Berkshire Hathaway, the most important thing in my case would be that I meet somebody who is in control of the substantial European business where it would actually make sense for Berkshire Hathaway to buy it. Mm. And in that case, I would be able to talk to them about, 
you know, that maybe things that they don't understand. They may not even be aware of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. They may not be aware that he's interested in buying businesses in Europe. And then I would be able to make the initial connection. And, um, you know, I think that I've, I've done that once in a random way, which I can talk about. And I've, um, uh, you know, I mean, I've attempted to do it once with IKEA, which was kind of a fun little project with an intern, uh, which didn't go anywhere as expected. But what's so I'm giving you a very long discursive answer to the question. I think because Warren sees that I'm not trying to make indecent proposal, indecent requests, I'm not trying to mm -hmm. grab his time. I'm not trying to I'm not doing things that uh, if I was less self-aware would be burdensome to him. He's delighted and happy to have me around in ways that suit him. And mm -hmm. what, what yeah. ways suit him? Uh, you know, he, there's 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 people who he holds dear. Uh, from his life where he's liked meeting them and he doesn't really have that especially not now uh, as, as he's grown slightly older but for a period of about a decade after the lunch we Monish and I would be invited to a Buffett brunch that would happen on the Sunday morning uh, and where there was some incredible people I mean the treasurer of uh, the Federal Reserve was there one year the the um, the, um, uh, the dean of Harvard Business School was there one year uh, some of the senior management, Charlie Bunger, Lee Lu, I mean, incredible group of people to hang out with. And um, so he, so, so he, if he likes, in my case, I think he liked me enough that he wanted to be generous to me in a way that he's generous to many people, but only because I didn't um, abuse that generosity. Mm, yeah. And if I were to, if I were even to even think of abusing that generosity, I'd be deleted in no time, you know? Yeah. So, so, that so that's sense. the nature of the relationship. So I think that it's too much to say that we've stayed in touch. But mm. uh, but but he knows who I am, and I certainly know that. And I I, I joke. And about you know who it. he is. <laughs> yeah, I joke about it. But but it, you know the the reason why I did the project on IKEA was I just this I had this wonderful intern Roy Lipovetsky, recently graduated from INSEAD, and I said, hey Roy, what what do you think of this? And Roy was super enthusiastic, and he said, "And I said, Roy, the probability that I, IKEA, the, the 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 trusts that control IKEA, uh, decide that they're going to sell themselves to Berkshire Hathaway is, is you know, not not even one in a million. But boy, would it be fun to do the work, you know?" Mm. And uh, and he said, "Yeah, let's do it." So we did the work, and we met a couple of directors who basically said, "Yeah, this is going to fly." And we kind of we kind of said to the directors, "It's a white paper actually that's available if anybody's interested." We kind of said to the directors, look, do you see that it's actually a really good idea? And our point to the IKEA directors was, um, you guys want to preserve IKEA culture and what IKEA is, which is this incredible business. It's a bit like Costco in the furniture business, or a bit like, I think, with the greatest respect to Nebraska Furniture Mart, it's better than Nebraska Furniture Mart. But what happens in 50 years' time? How do you preserve your culture in 50 years' time? And our point to them was that we thought and we could make a case that the best way to preserve that culture is to actually become a part of Berkshire Hathaway because, mm. the, because Berkshire Hathaway would reinforce that culture in ways that they would not succeed at doing it alone and they would actually possibly help Berkshire Hathaway's culture as well. And mm. you know, the one director that we managed to speak on the phone with, he was like, yeah, you, you've got a great point. I'll certainly read up on Berkshire Hathaway. And maybe, I'll, you know, if you lay it in front of the board, we'll discuss it for about three milliseconds. We're not required to. But and so that was the end of that. But, you know, in another case, um, 
I, uh, so, so I was sitting on a bus in Madrid and I'm sitting next to a Mexican guy who has an auto dealership in Southern California. And he's, he, he kind of like, somehow we get onto the subject of Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett. And he says, oh yeah, those guys are trying to buy my business, but I'm just not really sure I want to do it. Cause you know, so many members of my family are employed in the business and, you know, and I kind of jumped on him and I said, you know, you're a perfect candidate. If you don't care about the price, you care more about preserving uh, existing relationships in the business. That's the deal that you get out of Berkshire Hathaway. And I can tell you that you can take that to the bank. And if you like, I can connect you. Uh, I, you know, I said, I'll connect you to Warren Buffett's assistant. I bet you he'll, he'll if, you, if, if you're close to saying yes, he'll pick up the phone and talk to you about it. Mm. And, um, you know, and he was kind of very bemused. And he said, well, what, what's your interest in this? And I just said, I'm grateful to Warren Buffett. And then he, uh, he's, at the end of the conference, he says, you know, I think I might, I might take another look at that offer, something like that. So oh, there you I go. think that, uh, what blows me away, Brandon, is these stories get back to Warren. So there was a, right. another case where I did something like that, and uh, not through Warren, but I, but I heard that he talked to one of his directors, who I happen to know, have met once or twice, who got back to me. And so... Uh, I think that it's it's amazing because you've asked asked a simple question. I'm expanding on it at great length because I think there's some really really powerful and valuable wisdom there. So, so how can somebody like me and I'm a nothing have a relationship to Warren Buffett? Well, if I show up and be be a burden to him and show that I lack my understand and lack have a lack of understanding of how valuable his time is, that would be that you know i won't have a relationship with him mm. but if i look to his interests i look to what he's seeking to do and i seek to align myself with that not because he asked me but because i want to be a, a good friend because i want to be um, a positive force in his life then i can do that and and amazing things can happen as a result of that and mm. i think my point is first of all we should look to do that for people we're grateful to and whom we admire but then the the next thing is that we can look to to do that, to, to find people in our lives who are doing that for us. Mm. And that's when, in a certain way, a career really gets going and a business really gets going is that when it has many friends out there who are seeking to promote its interests. Why? Because the person feels grateful to the founder, because the person feels grateful to the business. And by the way, Brandon, I feel that way about you. I mean, we've only met once, but you're kind of doing that all the way from Australia, you know? And then, so what do I do? I mean, there's a certain way, there's a mirror image here. So we're at the Berkshire meeting and you come to the, the Friday night dinner where I was just asking for everybody's interest. I said, well, did you meet Debbie? Because Debbie was there and Brandon didn't, but like next time. So is that, you know, and, and so that's kind of like a really wonderful interaction. You get it, Brandon, yeah. you can teach this stuff better than I can, you know? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Win-win interactions, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 quality. Yeah, exactly right. But, and, and forgive me if I just hammer on this point. No, go for um, it. But but so if if somebody is listening to this and you're like, well, I'm going to write to who knows CEO of Coca Cola. So first of all, don't pick up the phone, try and talk to the CEO of Coca Cola. The probability, even if he likes you very much, the probability that the moment when you call is the time when he's got the bandwidth and the availability to take your call is very very low. But you know, you can write him a note. Even better, you know, take a photograph of you with him and sign it on the front and say the most amazing CEO. Uh, and, and then see if, you know, you might find that if you see a photograph of him in his office, you might see that he framed it and put it behind himself. So find a way to align yourself with his, um, in this hypothetical situation with the CEO of Coca-Cola. 
with, with the incredible pressure and intensity that they have on their day-to-day lives. Don't try and force mm-hmm. them to make time for you. Find yeah. a way to slot yourself into their lives. And another way to do that, just, just to give a sense, is look at the people who are important to them. So um, a guy like Warren or um, uh, uh, the hypothetical CEO of Coca-Cola. So if you take Warren, um, you know, the most important gatekeeper in his life is Debbie. Debbie's really important to Warren. So you need to make Debbie important to you. Debbie's not, she's, she's really important and not in a, not in a um, kind of manipulative way. Or, you know, hmm. Actually look to Debbie's interests, see what she's trying to achieve and try and help her to achieve that, for example. Or it could be, I mean, obviously Ted Wexler or Greg Abel is an extremely important relationship for Warren. They're the future of Berkshire Hathaway. What does Greg, Greg Abel need? What does Ted Wexler need? And and find a way to appear in a positive way to them, if you like. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, thank very you. interesting. <laughs> thank you for listening to my TED talk. Well, we've spoken a lot about Warren. Let's talk about you. <laughs> you probably want to talk more about Warren. I want to talk about you, guy. Yeah. Um, and that's honestly that's that's one of the great reasons. That's why I you know I love talking to you is that we're both kind of investors, albeit you're a long way further down the track than I am. But we, we both kind of look up to Warren. Um, as a kind of an investing idol. But I'm interested when people come and ask you, you know, how do you invest? How do you how do you explain your investing strategy to people that ask? You know, the answer that I love to all of these sort of like very good questions that are really difficult to answer is with great difficulty. <laughs> how do you invest with great difficulty? You know, that I think there was a cyclist, maybe it was Eddie Merckx, Maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was Lance Armstrong. He said, uh, it doesn't get easier. You just get faster when he was talking about cycling. So, you know, this idea, you see somebody who's a great cyclist and who cycles really fast and you think, oh, they cycle really fast and it must feel really easy for them. The answer is it feels about as shitty as it feels for you when you're climbing up that hill. It's just that they got faster, you know? Uh, why? So, so I think that, what's my point? If you're looking at, you know, Brandon's shining the light on me, but if I'm looking at Seth Klarman or Warren Buffett, or, you know, you, we were talking a little bit about Mike Burry. Um, and uh, so like the idea that, so they, so they certainly make it look easy in the same way that Eddie Merckx or Lance Armstrong made cycling look easy, but it's not easy. They just, it's the same difficulty, if you like, it's the same struggle, it's the same difficulty. So. Um, so the first thing is get used to it. <laughs> and I think that, uh, you know, um, so so I a question that you brought up, Warren, so a question that I asked Warren pretty early on at the lunch was, you know, I, I told Warren I found it really, really hard to do the right thing, for example, to convert my fund to zero fee structure. I asked him, in a certain way, there's some question, I said, does it get any easier? And he paused a little bit and he kind of said, well, a little. So he did say a little, but that was my, that's my lunch coming here. I've, oh. I've committed that I'm not going to eat in front of the audience, so that's okay. <laughs> but, you just um, have to smell it, sitting there smelling good, waiting. <laughs> it's what fine. you got for lunch it's today? David. So maybe you don't, you, you don't have to cut that out. If, if, if no, I love it. What, what, do you, what have you got for lunch today? Go I on. did quiche. So normally quiche. I would have eaten it. I'm, I'm, uh, so there's the... Uh, there's the quiche right there, Ooh, but I'm not gonna. Beautiful. And then um, I'm I'm into these Pellegrino drinks, which is a Nestle company, so that's good. But uh, so these kind of like these kind of like bitter orange juice oh. type of thing. That's oh, San nice. Pellegrino. That's Aranciata. But 
but we're going to get way beyond uh, where we are right now before we go there. So, so, so this <laughs> you, you'll be speeding this podcast up. Like, hey, Brandon, let's <laughs> oh, come oh, on, mate. Pause for a second. We'll pause and come back. So, um, it doesn't it doesn't get easier. Uh, somebody, I, I get these questions like, "What books should I read?" And mm. and what I what I love to answer is all of them. You know. And, and so the question is, yeah, but I can't read all of them at once. And I say, yeah, so you pick up the one that's nearest to you and you have to have this awareness as you're reading it. Is this right for me right now? And, you know, you may read it to the end. You may put it down after reading a chapter or two. You may put it away for reading later. You may chuck it and then move on to the next one because we can only read one thing at a time. So why does that apply to investing? Because I think that we're on an intelligent search of the landscape as it shows up to us for the right investment ideas. And um, we have to, the landscape is different for every single person for, for a thousand different reasons. First of all, the instruments that they can buy or sell are different because they have access to different markets. The size of their portfolio is different. The access to information that each individual has is different. We, first of all, we don't have the band reach with to reach, read everything, but also, we combine the information that we take in with our personal experiences to develop a model of the world. And so all of that's happening at the same time. And we have to update our models and our ideas as we go along. So we can start reading a book, be totally into it, to use that analogy, and then halfway through realize this is not the right book to read. Actually, what I need to do is go back and read the basic history and then I'll dive into this very specific history because I need that background to really to make the most out of this book in the book analogy. What does that mean in investing? So, so, and I'm going on the circuitous route. I'm looking at Brandon's face and trying to work out if I'm, if I'm, if he's with no, me. Going. You know, you got to explore your landscape intelligently. So let's just ground this a little bit. I'm, you know, and I'm imagining I'm opening up my Charles Schwab account, and so. First of all, if it's a Charles Schwab account, which is an, a U.S. online broker, I don't have access to every instrument. So, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to buy Zimbabwe cement uh, through my um, Charles Schwab brokerage account. I'm not going to be able to buy the Chinese drinks company Mao Tai. So already I have a landscape. There's not a complete landscape. That's okay. There's plenty of things uh, that I can I can look at. But and then there's a dependency on my own personal knowledge. I think that if I'm putting myself, in the, and you haven't, but if I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody like that, and let's say I'm, I'm flush with cash, so there's 100% cash in the portfolio, and I've decided that I'm able and willing to allocate X percent to equities, which I know can fluctuate, I think my first step is, is probably an S&P index. And I think that I would go one step further and say, okay, well, I understand that the market cap-weighted index doesn't perform as well as a flat-weighted index. So I'll take the flat-weighted index, and, and Charles Schwab provides me with access to that. And then I would do that, and then I need to pause and reevaluate because now I'm in a new landscape, if you like. So, um, so everybody's landscape is different. And something really, really important, so we just talked about how um, you know, there are things that we think are the same everywhere, and they're not. Our time is different to Warren Buffett's time. Uh, you know, you can look at somebody and you can think that they're doing nothing, but actually they're they're extraordinarily put upon with the number of things that they're trying to juggle. And, you know, somebody looks at me in my office and they think, well, he's doing nothing. He's just sitting at his desk reading. So I, I don't so see why you shouldn't stop by for a coffee with me. You shouldn't. And, and, and that would be fine if it was one coffee. But what if it's 10 coffees in a day? Mm -hmm. So 
in investing, we'll look at somebody like Warren Buffett or, or Bill Ackman or Mike Burry, and we'll see that he's done something. We'll th and, and then the question, the, 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 the voice that arises in one's head is, you idiot, why aren't you doing that? I mean, there's this smart guy doing it. And actually, there are many reasons why one wouldn't. So uh, where Bill Ackman sits or where Mike Burry sits is not where I sit, is not where you sit, is, is not. So um, one example of that is at the time that I, I actually, one of the few times I was in a room with, with Bill Ackman, who's a wonderful guy. He really is extremely generous. Uh, he was sharing his ideas about uh, is MBIA AAA. And uh, he wanted to go short to these mutual, uh, municipal bond insurance companies. And he talked about these credit default swaps. I went back to my office and uh, looked up credit default swaps and discovered that I could buy credit default swaps through Best Duns. And then asked myself the question, well, if these credit default, you know, these, these are over-the-counter um, uh, derivative securities where the contract is something called an ISDA, uh, which, which is a kind of a, it's a generalized form of a derivatives agreement with a brokerage firm. And they send over something, a piece of paper, it's like five or six inches thick, and they're like, we're happy to trade credit default swaps with you and uh, just read this document and sign it so that you're on board mm -hmm. it. And I looked at this document and what I realized was that if I was seriously in the money on any of these, I would be looking to enforce my my derivatives contract against Bear Stearns. And there were examples in the post-financial, great, great, great financial crisis of 2008-9, where um, the brokerage firms looked to, got out, to get out of those derivatives contracts, those CDS contracts, credit default swaps that had gone against mm -hmm. them. And I realized that as a tiny fund running $100 million, that's tiny in New York terms, I didn't trust my ability to enforce that contract. And I wasn't even sure. It turns out that the very big people who did that were able to enforce them, but sometimes only with the help of a bailout from the Federal Reserve in the case of, I think it was um, uh, Goldman Sachs. They they needed a serious amount of bailout, also like financial support in order to meet some of their obligations on credit default swaps. So mm. what's my point? My point is don't, ha don't, don't allow that voice that says, you idiot, why are you not doing what Mike Burry is doing? Why are you not doing what Bill Ackman is doing? Don't let that voice get to you because, because you're, you have to drive your investment vehicle from the perspective that you are in. And so, so, so with all of that said, Brandon, now I can talk about how I invest. And so <laughs> uh, point number one for me is was and is one portfolio i don't want to manage multiple portfolios when you see a talking head when you see somebody speaking about they did this they did that they made this return that return they're concentrated you want to ask yourself what does their whole balance sheet look like you know so so interesting ca case in point um so this guy jochen zeitz used to be the ceo of adidas and i be, believe puma very successful german executive very wealthy guy decided that he's going to become the CEO of Harley-Davidson. He acquired a certain number of shares of Harley-Davidson. I may not be getting the story entirely correct. Um, Harley-Davidson is a great brand that people tattooed into their arms, but it's only older motorcycle drivers who are buying Harley-Davidson. But when I, and I was like, my God, this guy is a marketing genius. Uh, what if he managed to turn around 
uh, Harley Davidson. So I looked at what he owns, and he owns a sliver, last time I checked, of uh, Harley Davidson. And he's got a healthy options package. So I realized that what he's doing is he's saying, well, wouldn't it be an amazing story if I turned this around? But I'm not going to put my life savings into this because I really don't know if I can turn it around. So there are many people that we will see as talking heads who claim to be doing certain things, who are doing certain things, but you're only seeing a small part of their portfolio. Mm -hmm. yeah, so, so the answer, you know, if you look at Jochen Zeitz is, you know, allocate about as much of your net worth as Jochen Zeitz has allocated to Harley Davidson. You know, don't allocate more than what he's allocated, which is not a lot. He's taken an asymmetric bet in a, in a very interesting way. And it may work out, but it may not. All the stuff that is written up is so one portfolio. And, and if I'm evaluating people like that, I want to try and get a sense of what their whole portfolio looks like. Worth saying, in, in the case of Mike Burry, he's extremely secretive. In the case of um, Bill Ackman, he's less secretive. But when he does a very, very famous bet that pays off, we don't know how many of his bets didn't pay off, you know? And so there's a focus on the things that worked, but we don't know all the things that didn't work. So mm -hmm. the, the, the reality plays games with us. So in my case, uh, you know, close to you know, the overwhelming majority, other than a little bit of real estate, of my net worth, of my family's net worth, and was invested in one vehicle. It's the vehicle that I run, whose name I'm not going to mention because I could get into compliance trouble with that. So, uh, Don't do that. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is totally fine. And then within that, uh, and I, uh, what I do is I do something, something that I would call barbell. So, or no, there's another way of putting it. So, imagine I'm a caveman. And, um, you know, on the one hand, there's really, really juicy bison. And uh, what are those big elephants? The, the, the prehistoric elephants were called, you know, mammoths or something like mammoths, that. Exactly. You know, tasty meat, lots of it. They're out there. The only problem is to go out hunting for that stuff. You know, you need to go out and there may be saber toothed tigers and all sorts of nasty animals that can kill you. So it's dangerous stuff. Now, deep back in my cave, I've got a supply of dried fruits and I've got a supply of maybe some grains that I've managed to pick up. And those are like deep there and they're safe. And where I want to sit is I want to sit at the mouth of the cave. I want to have lots of stores behind me that if, if storms come in, if, if lots of nasty tigers are out there, I can stay inside the cave or close to the mouth of the cave, totally safe, and I can eat. And every now and then when the conditions are really good or if a juicy mammoth comes real close, I can go out and try and get it. What does that mean in the portfolio? Well, the back of the cave are the things that even the, if the apocalypse comes, will still be able to feed me. And we've got, in my case, I've got things like uh, Nestle in there is the best example that I like to give, but I also have American Express and I have Bank of America and I have Berkshire Hathaway. And, and then, you know, I go outside the cave, so to speak, and I go and hunt uh, for things that could be multi-bagger investments. So in my case, you know, I go out and I look for India Energy Exchange and I look for care ratings and I look for uh, these situations, Saritage would be another where I could make many multiples of my money, but I might not. Uh, mm. And so that's kind of like uh, it's a sort of like barbelled approach. You've got you've got your safety stuff, and you've got the stuff that could generate huge returns, and that works really really well for me, and I feel very very comfortable with that. But all of my long prelude was to say that's what I do, and you need to see that in the context of who I am and where I am. That doesn't mean that you should do it, Brandon, or a listener should do what I'm doing. Mm. Take it as an example. Don't take it as advice. 
it kind of starts starts within I guess your own well we'd call it that your own circle of competence your own wheelhouse what you're comfortable with your own financial position and then you kind of go from there and you work from there that's a, that, that, that's a great point so you know uh, I think that you and I both are in this camp I feel very supremely comfortable with my investment in Berkshire Hathaway which very significantly sized position in my fund uh, and has grown a lot. And there are all sorts of people who come and say, well, it's trading at a premium to book value. What if, you know, maybe they should be split up. What happens when Warren dies? Does that, does that all kind of, does all that premium to book value disappear? There are all sorts of concerns. I've thought through those concerns and I, I am extremely confident that I don't need to be worried about those. That's, we could claim after 25 years or more of attending the Berkshire Hathaway meeting and in a certain sense, paying a lot of money to do due diligence on Warren Buffett personally, I could maybe claim that that's within my circle of competence. But somebody else might might not feel the same way about Berkshire Hathaway. In which case, you know, maybe the S and P is a far better far better way for you to start. And you start with the S and P, and then you start looking at specific businesses in the S and P. And then at some point, you say, you know what, I'm comfortable owning, and I'm really just picking a name randomly out of the hat, United Healthcare. Or I'm I'm confident. I've read about this strategy where you, where you buy the dogs of the Dow, you buy the dogs of the S and P, and out of these five businesses that have performed really badly in the S and P, I actually really like this one, or I work in the industry, or so that that's this nature of this changing landscape, and we have to con- constantly evaluate where we are in our own personal changing landscape. I want to ask you about the changing landscape. Obviously, a lot of people have been, I guess, a little bit stressed lately. We've we've seen high inflation that seems to be coming back down, um, but we've also seen interest rates now almost globally rise. Interesting. I'm interested to hear, and a lot of people were kind of asking about this. Um, in 2024, it looks like we're going to be challenged with high interest rates. How does that play into your investing? Do you worry about it? But also beyond that. How do you uh, ensure that your own businesses that you hold will be able to handle a higher interest rate environment? Are there some things that you look out for? Are there some like stress tests that you you kind of apply? How how do you look at a higher interest rate environment and what yeah. you have to do? So it's interesting. I mean, you know, Warren's Warren Buffett is no economist. Doesn't doesn't even claim to like economists, but actually. This paper that he wrote for, I don't remember where, um, How Inflation Swindles the Investor is kind of like a phenomenal piece of insight and work. And um, I'm probably going to do it great damage, but I'm going to summarize it because I think it's got, and I think that I get the nub of the idea, which is that Mm. a business that has to spend money today for future earnings in one way or another is going to be spending an an inflationarily rising amount of money on its investment in R&D, its investment in maintenance of buildings. So whatever money that's spending, that rising, that the the, the rising prices will eat very, very rapidly into the profits of the company. And so a question arises and, and it swindles the investor. Can the company uh, pass those increased costs on. And that's where there are a whole range of businesses. Some people will not be able to keep uh, pass on the, those increases in costs. They just have to spend the money and uh, they won't get anything back for it. And that's kind of like a swindle, if you like. And you may take the example of department stores 
where they have to invest constantly in the retail experience. And they have to invest today, but they're in a very competitive business. So they can't pass on price rises because if they pass on the price rises, the customers will go somewhere else. And so mm. suddenly, instead of being able to share the benefits of their service to the customers or their, the, their product offering to the customers with the investors, they just have to run to keep up. And everybody's got to run to keep up. So it's kind of like a, a red queen type scenario that you've got those kinds of situations. But then you have other situations where a company does not have to spend any money uh, maintaining or growing its brand or its uh, because because it's living off its past investments. Uh, the past investments are carrying it through or uh, it's it's that's kind of emerged with no past investment. So there's a company called Verisign in the United States, and they basically control the .com domain and a bunch of other domains. And it's kind of a quirk of history that they ended up controlling it as a publicly traded company. And um, there's very little investment that went into it. They just showed up in the right place at the right time and a confluence of things came together. And um, there's not much investment required in the future. And they, they don't have the most difficult time raising prices on their customers because you put up a website and you want to control the domain name for the next five years and you're paying $12 a year to, to, to control it. And maybe you're paying an extra... Then you have all these add-ons if you want to protect yourself, if you want privacy, if you want some other things. But there's no real investment the way a department store would need to invest in its physical infrastructure or an automobile company. $1 billion minimum to develop a new engine, for example. That's current expenditure. So, so, we, so we need to realize that businesses are, are unusual or businesses are diverse. Not all businesses are the same. Um, you know, Just a quick aside. You in Australia probably have one word for snow. It's snow, but when you when you when you grow up in Eskimo land, there's like 30 different words for snow. There's wet snow, slush snow, dry snow, drifting snow, snow that's been compacted, snow that with a crisp of crisp of of ice on the top, and a thousand different kinds of snow. So if you start living in the world of businesses and start thinking about them in inflationary environments, there is a broad diversity of businesses and one. In some cases, we don't really know. We have to kind of think through the dynamics of what will happen. But to take you to the other end of the spectrum and to kind of the end point of where all this is going, um, you know, a a, a bank uh, borrows, but receives money and deposits and lends it out in a rising interest rate environment. Their net interest margins, the the difference between what they what their funds cost for them to raise through client deposits primarily and what they get when they loan the money out rises so that an interest rate in a rising interest rate environment tends to be good for banks with those kinds of balance sheets uh, it tends to be good for any business that automatically prices its product as a percentage of the uh, rising the the, 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 the actual um, the, the source of the revenues is denominated in nominal terms so um, the beautiful thing about credit card networks is that they take a percentage of nominal amounts spent. So they kind of like, they, they don't have to go and ask for price increases because they take a percentage of what the customer spends in the store. So, so as, the, as people succeed in raising prices, they're, they're baked in on that. Another example would be a stock exchange. The stock exchange is baked in because their revenues tend to be a proportion of the total value, nominal dollar value of the shares traded. And so they're in many ways inflation protected. So there are businesses that are, find it 
have a far easier time in an inflationary environment. And you kind of ideally want to be in those businesses for all sorts of reasons. So part of it is selection, but there's something else. And I can't believe how I'm rambling. I hope that you're still. No, it's good. Open. This is, yeah, this is very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, there's obviously what scares the hell out of any investor is that um, rising, rising interest rates means a rising discount rate. And at a rising discount rate, future earnings are um, less valuable to you. Earnings 20, 30 years out are almost not value to you, of any value to you at an interest rate of seven, eight, nine percent. And 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 it comes what comes to you in the next in the in the sort of like decade after you buy becomes far more important. So um, uh, and, and so especially high growth businesses, in, as interest rates rise, their valuations can come down very very dramatically. And so there's a question that arises: Yeah, okay, but if they're inflation protected, what should I do? And I I would tell you that it's reasonably clear to me that if you have the expectation the interest rates will rise, then there is a very high likelihood, even on non-growth businesses, that their valuations will come down, and that's not very pleasant. And I think that over time, you make it back because they will be able to raise prices in line with inflation, and their earnings, therefore, will grow faster. But those two things work against each other. You can make a very good case for saying, well, wait for interest rates to rise, hold on to your cash, and then buy. But what I choose to do because that's just too hard for me, because that gets too close to kind of like timing the market. So what I choose to do is I just say, I want to be in these businesses. I'll try and buy them at a good valuation. And then I'll just, I don't want to waste my brain cells thinking about inflation. And so I just decide not to think about it and say, well, if I'm in a good enough business and I've given some of the criteria that I'm using to try and, try and select them, then I should be fine no matter where interest rates are, which is in a certain way, Forgive me, Brandon. I'm kind of saying, well, here's how you think about it. And then I'm going, yeah, but I don't think about it that way. I just, and I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping, but I it comes to my mind and therefore maybe uh, it mm. is more relevant than I think it is. But you know, the, the question arose constantly in the world of crypto. Uh, you know, are you doing crypto? Should I do crypto? Should I invest in exchange? Should I invest in Bitcoin? Should I, should I, should I? And I, I took this analogy, which I really like. Imagine I'm a farmer. Imagine I'm a wheat farmer. I was last weekend. I was in Cambridge, England, uh, and uh, so that's an area of, of the United Kingdom where it's like very flat, and there are lots and lots of wheat fields. It's a very productive place to grow wheat. I imagine myself on a farm there. So that actually is the Wheatabix, a company that I used to own in my portfolio, was based there because they had all this wheat to grow and they turned it into this very famous cereal that was had for i think still does has a 50 percent market share in the uk and so you imagine somebody who's owns a bunch of wheat fields and is producing wheat and somebody comes to them and says hey there's crypto in london well not crypto there's there's uh, all these new businesses growing in london there's and and in manchester you can go and do um uh, these machines that make uh make textiles and we can grow textiles and we can grow cotton in the colonies and we can have them, we can make it into, into uh, manufactured textiles and then send it out. And, and people are making so much money and, you know, you could either make the textiles, you could make the machine that makes the textiles. Manchester is this incredibly exciting place. The industrial revolution is taking place. But if I'm sitting on my farm and sorry, I'm belaboring the point. I sit there and I say, well, I don't understand all those machines. Some people succeed, some people won't. Some people make textiles that people want, some people won't. But I know that every day they wake up, they're still going to want to eat bread and they still want to, want to consume my wheat. So what is wrong with 
uh, saying, I'm just going to sit on my wheat farm. And um, uh, what's, what's the point to you? When you figure something like that out, if it's simple and even if it makes you feel stupid, like maybe the wheat farmers feel kind of stupid, that's okay. Just stick with it and, and learn from there. Maybe eventually as the wheat farmer, you figure out that actually these people making newfangled machines in Manchester, they've, they've, there's actually a wheat thrashing machine that actually saves you labor. So you will actually go and use that machine in your business. But um, circle of competence expands gradually through experiences of existing businesses and it's okay not to feel like you know everything about everything and i'm not sure i've answered your question you need to remind me of the question no 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 that, kind of ramble there a little bit no no that is absolutely fine that's exactly what well it kind of ties it all back together is to stay in your wheelhouse circle of confidence we, we started talking about those macro pressures that people are concerned about and I think you covered that off well with both inflation and interest rates. But I guess at the end of the day, you what you were saying is to uh, find those businesses that are in your wheelhouse, you know, invest in them at reasonable valuations, but not to get so hung up on the macro and instead trust in the business and in the management yeah. and keep your eyes on the horizon. Think about the long-term compounding effect of what the business can achieve and I guess think long term. That's that's what I take away from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, forgive me for the ramble. I thought you were going to say, "Yeah, it's okay, guys, so long as you ramble." <laughs> no, but, um, no, no, not at all. So you know, just a couple of things. If somebody's getting started in investing, so obviously we've mm. talked about index funds. Um, there, there was another place that I wanted to go, and my I've just done a, a brain freeze. Yeah, so I think that I, I remember like feeling like my investment ideas had to be original. You know, we have this idea hammered into our heads in high school and at university. You know, your thinking has to be original. And I had some guy sort of like, uh, you know, sort of accuse me somewhere on social media. He's like, guy doesn't have an original thought in his mind. And I was like, yep, guilty as charged, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and not only am I not ashamed of it, I'm proud of it. Why on earth would I not? Um, so, so, you know, the, the kind of bowling with rails to help you get the ball to the skittles at the other end. There are so many ways to bowl with rails. One way is to use the S&P. One way is to look at the moves of other investors and to say, well, if they did their due diligence well, there's a whole bunch of assumptions that I can make about that business. Maybe I can get a little closer to it. And when you triangulate that with what you're reading about the company and maybe some personal experiences that you have that are unique to you, maybe you get to a place where you say, okay, I'm now going to do the S&P and Coca-Cola or the S&P and Nestle. And one can one can expand from there. So, the way I found my way into the into understanding how powerful credit rating agencies were was was kind of like that. I mean, I was bowling with rails when I found my way into Moody's and uh, a company called Duff and Phelps, and and now I'm kind of like venturing a little further away from that. Like the leading companies in India, uh, well, one leading company is Crizzle, but I've actually an investment in a company that's not the leading company. But I think, it, you know, over a 50-year time period, it could become number two, you know, and I'm sort of thinking that that's kind of interesting, but but that that I would not have called that. And I'm not even sure if right now, Brandon, it's within my circle of competence. The other thing to point out is that I, I will not be doing it with an enormous proportion of my uh, my fund. I'm going to I'm going to healthily size the position to account for the uncertainties. All right. Well, Guy, for the next section of the podcast, um, I opened up um the the call 
to to um, people that follow the channel and the podcast. And I've got a whole bunch of questions that uh, the viewers have sent in. So I wanted to see how many of these we can rattle off. I know we've been talking for a long time and I, I wanna, I'm conscious of the time. So let's get straight into it. Um, the first question asks, do you think valuation models need to be detailed and complicated or are simple approaches enough, metrics like price to earnings or price to book value? What's your approach to valuation? Yeah, so um, they do not need to be detailed for sure. And you can get into great problems uh, when you do detailed models because you kind of putting in numbers that may, then you kind of like anchor onto those numbers and those numbers start to feel like reality, but they're not reality. They're just numbers that you threw up on a spreadsheet. So I think the spreadsheets can perform many useful functions. Um, if you're modeling cash flows in a, um, in a company that's highly leveraged, that, that produces very stable cash flows, and you may be looking at a waterfall of um, cash flows through different uh, tiers of bonds, for example, that is something where you probably do want to do a detailed model. And I think that many private equity firms do do those kinds of detailed models. If you're looking at what's going to come out to the equity, maybe in an unlevered business where you're not, you don't need to model detailed cash flows, I think that probably it can be a very bad idea. But then at the other extreme, just to buy things that are, are simply cheap on price to earnings, price to book also doesn't cover it. I think that I love the sweet spot. So I rarely, I'm never modeling complex cash flows across different um, tiers of bonds, for example. And um, there are brokerage firms when they produce a very detailed model of a company, that, that what they can often do with that model is predict with a high level of certainty what next quarter's earnings will be. And that kind of like, again, is not great and you can get into all sorts of problems with it. But I think that what's really fun is when you can get to a kind of simple model, but it's a model that you can describe verbally or write down on the back of an envelope of how the numbers move and why they move in the way that they move. So, right. so, so it's, you're capturing some simple ideas about the business, and I'll just give you one. Um, and it was an aha moment, an insight moment for me, or I can, maybe you'll allow me to give me two. Now, I'm sort of scared, Brandon, because I'm doing what I promised no, you, for do, which is I'm being discursive and I'm giving long answers to simple questions. But so I don't know why. I mean, these are simple ideas, but but when I really understood it, it was so incredibly powerful that if you are the company that sells the syrup to Coca-Cola and the cost of your syrup is less than 5% of the overall product. Uh, so, you know, a, let's just assume that a Coca-Cola can costs a dollar and the cost of your syrup within that dollar is uh, five cents. Then you could raise your prices by 20% from five cents to six cents. And the manufacturer and seller of that product can recover all of his increased cost to you by simply raising the price by 1%. So I got a 20% increase in price rises. That is really, really powerful. And once, once I understood that, you know, you kind of want to look for that in all sorts of places. I mean, earlier in our conversation, I talked about VeriSign. When you look at VeriSign and what it costs to register a website, and the proportion of your overall cost of running that website uh, is the registration cost is tiny. That implies that there's probably very, very, a very high degree of pricing power in that business. So, so that's a simple idea. Right. Of, um, and so to capture those ideas in a model and to understand how the numbers move and will move over time, I think that that is very worth doing. But either approach, either the detailed financial models or very simple PE ratios are probably not going to cut it, certainly not in this world. 
So it sounds like your approach is to find the business models or the businesses you understand and where it seems like it, it kind of jumps out at you as being quite an obvious thing. And then obviously you don't do no valuation. You, you have to check, but it's you're looking for more of those situations where it makes quite, uh, it kind of jumps out at you, makes quite logical sense. And it doesn't take hours and hours and hours of modeling just no. to figure out whether it's a good idea or not. I mean, if we take the VeriSign idea, there's certainly growth in the number of uh, registrations and there's certainly pricing power. But that is that is balanced against, and, and it's kind of like an insanely profitable business that is balanced against a valuation that is a very, very high multiple of earnings and very, very high multiple of cash flows. And they do use the cash flows to repurchase shares at a very high price. It's been an investment that has been extraordinarily expensive for a long time. But I kind of know that I've more or less captured the key economic elements of that business um, right there. And mm. I was going to bring in another example, but it's gone out of my head. So, but maybe it'll come back to me. Um, yeah. So you, I think that it is back of the envelope at the end of the day, but it's not just simple PE ratio, if you like. Yep. Uh, there, yeah, I, was, I was going to bring up this exchange business in India where um, there's, there's expected to be very, very high degree of market growth. So like multiples of, you know, the, the company's penetrated 6% of all energy traded. It, it could easily go to 70 or 80%, which is where Europe and some markets in North America are at. In that case, they, they, they're unlikely to have pricing power. They're likely to drop their prices. So the cost of trade will drop, but that's part, part of what's going to drive the growth in the market. So that's a kind of a different kind of model, but you, so you, you know, you want to have a sense of, you know, how much by how much will the prices drop? If it's now two uh, percent of the value, where will it be in ten years' time? Another example of that, by the way, is the discount rate on the um, credit card networks. So American Express is is often called out for having a very the highest discount rate. So the the customer when they swipe their card, how much of that money is going? to the merchant or the person who sold them the thing and how much of that money is being captured by the credit card network. But you have you have a, a secular decline in the amount that is the discount rate that is being captured, which is part of what's driving the growth of American Express and the others. Although having said that, what's amazing about MasterCard is that, and Visa's, they recently had the ability to raise their discount rate. So they're keeping that that sort of like price that the customer pays uh, the, the take between the uh, the um, price that the customer pays at the till and what the merchant actually receives. So, uh, but the, yeah, uh, that's where that's where I'm coming at it from. But I think that look, I, I have an undergraduate degree in economics and I have an MBA from Harvard Business School, and I I'm at the end of the day I'm more of a math guy than a words guy, a numbers guy, and so. Um, I think that there's plenty that one can do without having that kind of knowledge. I'm being brought coffee here. Oh, beautiful. The, can I invite Mariana to say hello to all of you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mariana. Hello. She's from Portugal. So you nice know, to you, meet your you. Your face is now going to go out live to the planet. Not live, but uh, no, she's, not brought live. Me, <laughs> she's brought me a, um, an espresso. Oh, wonderful. Says, uh, coffee Life happens. happens. <laughs> coffee helps. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. I love it. All right, Guy, while you take a sip, I'm going to ask you the next question. Oh, this is an interesting one. So you file your 13F. You don't do much, must be said. Who's 13F filing? 
do you look forward to seeing? And are there any under-the-radar investors that you follow? So that's a great case in point of the point that I was making earlier, that we Mm. don't always see the full picture. So I filed a 13F because I'm required to file it. Otherwise, I wouldn't file it. It doesn't show my activity outside of the United States. So for all you know, I've been buying and setting up a storm. I just haven't been doing it in the US. Here comes the scoop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I actually have been active this quarter. And I'm not going to tell you what. Because I because it's, it wouldn't be appropriate. I would be violating the interests of my investors in talking Ask, about answer it. this one for me though. Will it show up on a thirteen F? No, it won't. No, it won't. There you go. It won't because because all I'm required to do in the United States is to show my holdings of American companies. Mm. I'm not required to show my holdings of non-American companies, and so and I would also tell you that I have no doubt that some highly sophisticated and thoughtful investors because they're required to file 13Fs and they don't want to reveal what they're doing, might find ways to trade uh, in the security through a non-US denominated security. So if you give the example Mm. um, of uh, Tencent, one way to buy it might be through American ADRs where you have to file it in your 13F, but another way to buy it is through Process, which is a Netherlands-based company where you don't have to file it. So, So just pointing that out to the viewer, uh, don't always, you know, I, I, sitting next to a guy from the insurance industry a long time ago, he said, it's often important to pay attention, certainly pay attention to what Warren Buffett says and pay attention to what Warren Buffett says he does, but also pay attention to what he actually does. And I'm not saying that there's always a divergence, but sometimes there's a divergence and you just cannot mm-hmm. assume. And then there are some investors who will go so far as to completely mask what they're doing. So they'll develop a big position in a US public company as if they're all activists and long, but actually they've neutralized that position out with options, which they don't have to, they don't have to file in their 13F. So they might actually be economically neutral, the company. So it's just mm. important to pay attention to that. Things aren't what they seem, especially in financial markets. And so just be very, very careful when you look at 13Fs and and try to be aware that there are things that you don't know that may right. be taking place. And so well, I, I'm, I'm going to speak on behalf of everybody. Um, please don't take that route. Please just make it extremely obvious for us and just put it in your 13F. <laughs> that, would do it. We, that would save us so much time. And tell all of your friends to, can you tell Monish to do that as well? <laughs> I mean, the answer is that we, we do that to because we want to comply with the rules yeah of course and um yeah. the problem is is that i wouldn't do it voluntarily because if i don't have to because it does yeah. it, it really would impact um, people like us are watching <laughs> yeah but in terms of in terms of who to watch maybe less well-known people that i watch through 13 apps um you know i'm, I'm kind of pausing I think that so so a a company that I looked at recently that I discarded for the portfolio, but I was kind of curious for about it for a while, and who knows, maybe I'll come back at it, and it may be that the, for that reason it's a bad idea to talk about it here, but uh, do you Brandon, do you wakeboard? Or no, I don't. I would like to be able to, but I have not done so so far. So if you love water skiing, there are basically two branded boats that one wants to use. The main one is a, is a boat called Mastercraft, 
And there's also a company called Chris Craft. But Mastercraft is kind of the brand. It's not the brand leader. It's, it's the company that designs the boats that are totally dedicated to doing the best for the water skier and the wakeboarder. It's a mm. publicly traded company, and they buy back a lot of their shares. And um, I noticed that there's one fund that has uh, a significant position. And so my next step is to say, who is this guy and what else does he own? And if he files 13 Fs, let me get a sense of who he is and why he's up to what he's up to. And, and can I develop a sense of what his personality is so that maybe I can get an insight into his thinking? Mm. I think that that is a valuable thing to do. And so uh, I think that that company is called Voyager Capital Management. And I don't know right. the name okay. behind it but uh, it seems to be a very, very good capital allocator. And uh, Mastercraft is a fantastic brand, fantastic brand. Everybody in the, in the wakeboarding, uh, water skiing area knows it. Right. Know it so. Um, so there you go. I, I think that, uh, no, nobody strong is coming to my mind, and I apologize because maybe I could have been better prepared for this question. Oh, it's okay. But I think that... If you if you go back to my the, the first answer to kind of this evolving landscape, I hope I've given a sense of how one would uncover people who are worth following and one expands one's circle of competence. So, um, you know, I have some knowledge of this guy through his move through his actions in Mastercraft, and so then that that might inform me when I see other moves that he makes and I try to interpret them and understand what's going on there, but. But I, I think that really maybe, Brandon, I, I'd like to say all of them. Yeah. <laughs> what do I mean by that? I, if I had the time, I would want to study everybody's 13 Fs. Mm. They're interesting things to study. But only when I combine it with um, uh, this kind of knowledge of who they are and their personalities. And in one example, Mike Burry's coming up a lot. I think that Mike Burry's a guy who's extremely difficult to follow through his 13 Fs. Because I think that he's he's moving around a lot and he's making, uh, so I'm going to say something that probably if he was in the room, he wouldn't like it. But they, 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 to my mind, kind of like in the direction of speculative bets, very, very well placed, very carefully thought out, uh, overwhelming chances on odds on his side. But there may be a piece of new information or a market dynamic that will make him turn around even at a loss and cut the speculative bet right there. It's not an easy thing to follow as opposed to people who quietly grind away at buying better businesses like mm -hmm. Tom Cena, like Warren Buffett, like Ted Wexler. And those are kind of easier ones to follow, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, you know, what? So, so I think for me, there's, a, there's an element of um, how one, one of the ways that one can study chess, which is study, study a game, pull out a game of chess, look at the moves that the, um, the chess player has made, and then try to understand the reasoning for the move. And uh, so to do that, to play that, so you're kind of like, you're looking over the investor's shoulder. Why did the investor make that move? And I think that there is so much that knowledge and insight, even if you never make the investment, that one can gain from asking that question time and again, time and again, especially from the very, very thoughtful long-term investors. And I'm just blown away by how much I learned from every single one of Warren Buffett's 13F filings. Mm. So I haven't really answered That's the, the gold standard. No, that was good. That was good. Thank you very much. Um, all right. I'm going to ask you another one. Um, this is interesting. How often do you check up on your portfolio? So it's become 
far more infrequent. But again, the, we, we need to talk about. So I, if we go back 20 years, I was updating the portfolio for every cash movement that took place. And so I was opening up that spreadsheet daily and I had a general ledger in there. And I had a listing of all the positions, but I'd be tracking dividends and I'd be tracking all sorts of payments going in and out on a daily right. basis. I don't open that spreadsheet on a daily basis in part because somebody else updates the um, the general ledger of the portfolio. And um, so when and then when it comes to the actual uh, sort of like so so I did spend a period of four or five years, probably more, where I would look at the value of the portfolio on an almost daily basis, you know, maybe sometimes minute by minute. And there were times when I I adjusted the spreadsheet to bring real-time pricing from Bloomberg into the spreadsheet so I could see the value of the portfolio move by the minute. And it was so much fun to do and, you know, completely useless and not worth doing. And so that's a kind of like a rabbit hole, but it's worse than a rabbit hole. It's kind of a vicious cycle in that the more you do it, the more you want to do it and the more it's fun to do it, the more you can kind of like figure out. And then at some point, Brandon, I'd, I'd, decided that I need to allocate the annual costs of running the fund to a daily cost. So if I'm going to have my prices being updated minute by minute, you know, the, the clock should be ticking on things like the uh, accrued costs of the audit report, you know? And so, you know, I need to spread the audit report over all however many seconds there are in a year and have that click up every time or my management fees. And so you can get into a lot of and then, then you can go and you can analyze the portfolio by various different factors. How are my U.S. investments doing? Non-U.S. How mm. am I? You know, and so that is just an endless rabbit hole. And there's an enormous freedom that comes from saying, I'm never going to do that. Yeah. So that's the long answer. The short answer is, is that I think that on average, I'm checking it maybe once a month, something right. like that. But having said that, if there's something that I'm buying, I'm checking those prices more frequently. I have a sense of what size of a position it is in the portfolio. Is it a 1%, 3%, 20% position in the portfolio? And also because I have somebody just across the corridor from me updating the portfolio daily, they're watching it. And so if something happens that I need to know about, they will tell me. So in a certain sense, as an organization, we are watching it on a daily basis. Yeah. Someone's always watching. <laughs> yeah. You have to trust All right, well, watching. Yeah. Just to fit, I'm conscious of the time, so I want to finish up soon. But, Guy, uh, before we go, I want to send you 10 rapid-fire questions. You're very yeah. good at answering at length. This is going to be a fun way to finish, but I want to learn a little bit more about you. So I want to finish off with 10 rapid-fire questions. You can't elaborate. You just have to tell me the answer, okay? Yeah. All right. We'll finish off with this one. So number one, favorite takeout food? Tacos. Tacos. Oh, very nice. Uh, <laughs> number two, uh, who would you like to meet? today you can meet anyone but they can't be an investor and alive and alive yeah you have to be Steven able to meet spielberg them. spielberg oh yeah. very interesting storyteller uh, extraordinaire mm, very true yeah. favorite thing to do in your downtime um go cycling go cycling. swimming nice cycling swimming chess oh okay bit of a chess country skiing in wintertime chess fan as well yeah uh, best holiday you ever went on Oh, uh, the um, perhaps the trip that I did with my family to India. Oh, how we long ago a, was that? This was probably a decade ago. There's a video of it that's up on my B channel. I can send it oh. to send you to. It's got like it's got like five thousand views. 
I just put it up there and my children don't mind. But we took a train, we stayed at the Imperial Hotel in Delhi, and then we took a train, second class, there's no third class, but I insisted that if we were gonna do luxury travel, we were gonna combine it with the way that kind of the other half lives. So we, we were in this train carriage. It was it was a st story to be told. And um, <laughs> it, was, it was a very special experience with our three children. Mm, and that's why kids don't talk to you anymore after that train ride. <laughs> So they don't even remember going to India, believe it or not. Oh, okay. There but, you um, go. Too young? They do remember. But right. yeah, we just said they were like, um, I think the oldest was nine and the youngest right. was five, something like that. Yeah. Right, okay. But All right, let's move on. Up. You can put it in the links. It's actually up on, on YouTube right now. So oh, you okay. I'll have to hunt it, it down. Channel. But, uh, All right. But important next question, number five, Star Wars or Star Trek? Okay, Star Wars. Star Wars, nice. Yeah, good answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what company has been your best ever investment? I think it's Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> right. <laughs> Very fitting. Very. I promise that wasn't loaded. <laughs> that question. Yeah. Um, yeah. Number seven. Oh, I think I might have an answer for this already. Do you have a private company that you wish was public? Oh, um, and I should have been prepared. We spoke about it. IKEA. Hey. Uh, I mean, obviously, it depends on the valuation, doesn't it? No, but um, valuations are relevant. One private company that you just wish was public. Let's say it's thirty percent, fifty percent margin of safety. You just wish it was public. Ah, uh, I'm so sorry that I'm blanking because this doesn't help. IKEA was a good one. You brought that one up before. Sure, I'll say IKEA. IKEA is a great business. But it's one, just a little I, big. It's at the end of the runway. Mm, you know. True. One a company that. Me and Ham myself and Hamish, who I normally run the podcast with, we we spitball on this idea sometimes. He said Lego. Um, and another one he likes as well would be Red Bull. Red Bull. Oh, well, he's got better he's got better examples than me. <laughs> I, every now and then it happens. You know, Ferrari was not was not its own business. I guess it was part of a public business and it got spun out. Sometimes gems mm. get spun out, which is pretty amazing. Red mm. Bull, yeah. I, I don't know why I didn't bring that up, but thank you for Hamish for bringing that up. It's a good one. Red, Red Bull is insane. Mm. It's insane. The, the marketing is impressive. All right, well, sorry, we're getting off track. Number eight, what's the secret talent you have? I think that I've become, uh, I've I've become wise enough to become very familiar with uh, my um, disabilities, and I think that. Um, that's a superpower if you actually engage, if, if, if we become honest enough, we all have disabilities and most of them are hidden. And if we engage with those disabilities, they can actually become strengths. And so I think to the extent that I've been succeeding better in this part of my life than in earlier parts of my life, it's really counterintuitive. It's because I've really, and, and accepting one's disabilities and knowing that one can't get rid of them they're just there with us forever wherever you go there's your disability right there is an extremely painful process it, it's not it's not easy it's not like oh i'm fine with it no you're not fine with it it sucks but yeah. when you i think that when i truly understood that this was a disability that i carried around with me and i had to live with it uh then i could start really engaging on workarounds and 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 being the person who could who could overcome the disability and then it can become a real superpower in my case for example adhd i had the longest time wanting to believe that i was totally fine and actually i'm not and now i take medications almost on a daily basis and i don't only hire people who are willing to work with me as somebody who has adhd 
and I, um, you know, and it and it's a constant conversation between me and my wife, and I am deeply grateful to her for being willing to engage with and live with that kind of scattered attention. And so then it can, can become a superpower because people with ADHD are highly creative. But it's only when you when I fully engaged with it as a disability. And so mm. I, I I walk around in the world, and I feel like I see many people who have a kind of a disability, but they don't want to acknowledge it or they want to overcome it through sheer willpower and force that's just mm. never going to work you have to kind of accept it and then find find workarounds that was very insightful for what i was hoping would be a, a two-word answer now, i'm not All good right. at i'm not good at these short one answer i know one I, I can tell and we're already running over so give me two two more just simple but i just go back to your business that i wish was public i, I i'll give you actually and now now they're coming up thick and fast um i will give you two or three okay so here we go it happens because i'm i'm here in switzerland but uh this company breitling is run by a guy called george Kahn. he's one of the world's great marketers of luxury project products and watches he used to be the ceo of a company called iwc which is also is part of swatch group um breitling is now actually controlled by a venture capital firm will probably go public and will go public at a ridiculous valuation but it's a fascinating case study of a revived uh, luxury watch brand. Two other luxury watch brands, which are just fascinating businesses uh, and are very special businesses, they're jewels. One is, one is Rolex that has been in the news recently because they've acquired this company, Bukhara. And Rolex is a monster when it comes to luxury watches. And we all turn the pages of uh, The Economist and other magazines, and we see how Rolex does this incredibly subtle beautiful marketing and the other one which is perhaps a little more a lot more obscure than rolex is a company called patek philippe which is still a family business uh which is the ultimate luxury watch that nobody's heard of right there you go i see rolex all the time because i watch formula one <laughs> is ferrari ever going to win formula one again i don't know i don't know i what is Maybe. going on there will it impact the brand yeah, that's a good question. I feel like that's a question for another time. <laughs> All right, favorite movie or TV show? So I am going to give you a movie by the famous director who directed Oppenheimer and mm -hmm. Guy Pierce in it. And the name of the movie is Memento. Oh, that's a good one. I watched uh -huh. that actually just the other week. That is a good movie. Very well, good movie. I've I've used that movie to try and describe to people what it's like to be me. And I don't have the condition that that guy has, mm. but, but there's kind of some parallels and similarities there. And it turns out that the director whose name escapes me is a celebrated director. Who's, well, he's an extremely unusual thinker and he's, mm. he's kind of like a, a guy to study because he brought his own view of things and he's created these movies that nobody else could have created. And they're, they're not just like your standard Hollywood a sort of smarmy blockbuster, but they work and they mm. and they've achieved huge audiences. So he's a kind of a hero figure, actually. Christopher Nolan, yeah, he's a uh, Nolan. yeah, yeah, he's a very inventive uh, director. All right, last yeah. one: Will there ever be a sequel to the Education of a Value Investor? Uh, I wish I could uh, um, possibly. That's the one possibly. word, and I'll just tell you. So <laughs> let me tell you why. Um, the reason why that book is written in the way it's written is that I was under, I, I wanted to produce the best book I possibly could. 
I'm not an academic. In a different life, I could have been maybe an academic. I wanted to produce something of value to the reader. And so I wanted to explore terrain that I knew better than the reader and that I was an expert in. And so actually, I gave the reader the terrain of myself and my own life. So the question is, in a sequel, uh, what else am I going to do? Explore that terrain even more carefully. I'm not sure that there's much more to explore. I think I kind of explored you know, a good 80% of that terrain. Mm. And I think that it was a valuable contribution in the world. So a, a sequel could be a kind of like extra two or three chapters where I correct things. And, mm. um, you know, Miles Thompson, who is the uh, managing editor of Columbia Business School Press, a wonderful guy who in a different world would have been my editor. He kind of asked me the same question. I said, I gave him the same answer. And he said, yeah, that's probably a wise choice. Some people are one book people. And there's nothing mm. wrong with that. And some, you know, my métier, my profession, I don't think is writer. There are people like William Green who are an am amazing writers. So there's a real question as to whether I ought to write a second book. Having said that, I think that a, a reissue of the education of a value investor with extra chapters to cover some of these things that we're talking about and to correct some things that I now think completely differently about. I think I don't like it when I meet people who they're kind of surprised when I say, yeah, I'll definitely talk to management. And in the book, I say, don't talk to management. It bothers me that they've learned that lesson. And actually, mm -hmm. I've moved on from that. I've realized that that was a mistake. That was bad thinking on my part. And, and that's so, actually what we spoke about in the last podcast. We were speaking about the changes you would make to your book. <laughs> right. So, uh, but so I, so I, you know, I talk sometimes to William about it and, um, mm. But, you know, I can tell you that it's, it's just an enormous amount of work to write a book, and it's painful. Mm. So I'm not sure that I, I want to put myself through that pain. But. Well, if, even an updated book will take it. Guy, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to say a big thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm very uh, conscious of the time. You've already stayed a lot longer than you said you would, so I, I very much appreciate you um, taking the time to hang out with us. Of course, Guy is the founder of the Aquamarine Fund. You can look that up if you would like. You can follow him on Twitter. Uh, what's your handle? At gspear12? Or are you just at, G, at gspear? At gspear which one? on Twitter. Okay, perfect. And where else can people find you? On YouTube, Guy Spear? Yeah, um, just the education of Valley Investor. You'll type my name in, you'll find it. And yep. uh, I'm playing with Instagram. So I have two Instagram accounts, at G Spear, which is my personal one, and at G Spear one too. And I've actually been finding LinkedIn a great place to post my ideas, so I often post on LinkedIn. But I just want to say that the reason why I've st stayed so long is that, first of all, Brandon, you're an amazing host. I think you provide amazing value to your listeners, you. which is really, really lovely. You should all know that I got to meet Brandon in person at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, even if I didn't get to introduce him to Debbie Bosanic, maybe next time. We were we we kind of got into talking. We spent 45 minutes talking about a project that may come to fruition. Maybe Brandon will tell you more about that once we make progress. But uh, thank you so much for having me on, Brandon. You're a wonderful host. No worries. Thank you very much, Guy. And uh, go and get to your next appointment. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm 45 <laughs> seconds late, but that's okay. We'll be fine. All right. Thanks very much, Guy. Peace and love. Warm wishes. <laughs>